0: Welcome to the Love Podcast, a mini-series of anecdotes and interviews tailored for the inquisitive souls of today. For this edition of Ooh Ooh Interview, where I ask juicy questions to people that move me, I've invited Lauren Hunter-Smith, Certified Death Doula, to join me. She is a guide, caretaker, and advocate for the dying and their loved ones. In this session, I want to get to know why my dear friend wanted to work with death, And perhaps learn some more about the concepts involved with advocating for the dying in their community. So, welcome, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, this is going to be so incredibly exciting for me. I'm just very, very grateful. It's um, later in the evening for you. uh, So, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your kind of wind down routine to be with me halfway across the world. (laughs) <laughs> Lauren, what? I love that your business name is Bluegrass Death Doula. Um, in your own terms, what are you? What is a death doula?
1: Well, let's let's start with the word doula and break it down from there. A doula is a woman who provides services. It's an ancient Greek word. That's the term it refers to, but in terms of a death doula, it can be anyone who provides Death services. I do end of life planning, advocacy, and I also help loved ones kind of reconcile after their loss the bureaucracy of death and those types of things.
0: Okay. Bureaucracy of death. Very interesting. So, what is your relationship with death?
1: So, for me, I mean, death is something we're born with. And that's how I think of death. Death is a contingency of life, it's something you can't have. You can't just have life without death. You have to have that relationship. So, it's something that we carry with us. So I do think it's really, really interesting that, you know, we've developed this huge cultural fear of death and especially in America where, you know, women aren't even allowed to age. Like there's anti-aging products. We're certainly not allowed to die, let alone grieve. So I like to think of death as something that I've carried with me. We've always been together. And while it can be really sad, it shouldn't be scary. And I think any death worker will back me up on that. People who are dying naturally aren't afraid to die. It's not something to be afraid of. It's just something to be sad about.
0: Yeah. There's but there's like still like I guess like geisty fear of death
1: until oh, for you're sure.
0: I don't know. Yeah, I talk what, about what was the was there a thing that switched for you in your life where you just weren't afraid of it?
1: Um, you know, I think Peace Corps did take a big part of that because it was just all these moments where you're like, oh, this might not be the wisest decision I've ever made. <laughs> but you know, I've had a lot of personal loss i've I've seen a lot of loss. I've seen loss through other cultures and it's something that you know my natural kind of person is as a helper that's that's who I am in my natural state. and I have this huge opportunity to help and actually be effective in health care. and that's one of the things that's really appealing to me. We have so much opportunity to do so much better, and it's not even that we're gonna have to do like these big huge investments or anything like that. A lot of what we need to do to reform death care is simple. It's coming back to our traditional ways. It's finding the balance between traditional ways and modern ways of death care, but it's a huge wide open field right now. And it's, it's really exciting to be part of it. Mm.
0: I love that someone like you is because my understanding of you is just pure and utter sunshine. You have so much giggly joy, so much on reverie for that which I would consider like light and joyous and to be able to combine that with what's been stigmatized as like the darkest, most terrifyingly morose part of us. I think that's a great complementary system for
1: you. Yeah, I try to lean into it. You know, I try to have a little bit of a Dolly Parton vibe. I don't want to be Wednesday Adams. I don't want to be looked at as the old crone. Like, I try to bring a little something different that maybe doesn't look like how we perceive death look.
0: Mm. So, yeah, you didn't grow up as a Wednesday. Like, your family is not super. Uh, obsessed with death it's not like you were kind of brought up around it at all like
1: oh no not at all I mean I was a weird kid I did have funerals for every insect I inadvertently killed as a child um really? yeah I'm, I'm sure we had an insect funeral at some point in time together um oh, I was also I always really afraid to leave my parents I was afraid that they would die if we were ever apart which is like my only child baggage but it, it's something that I think does Affect that choice is like I want to be prepared for it when they they do leave because it's something that right. I process at a different level than maybe right. someone who's part of a larger family.
0: Oh wow, that's so cool! So you have always been interested in the preparation or the readiness or the kind of facing it head on,
1: for sure. Yeah, I mean it's definitely something to prepare for, and even you know as I've seen my friends lose parents or people around me pass. The bureaucracy of it is really, really overwhelming. I, You know, I don't know what New Zealand paperwork looks like, but here the language is written deliberately to be so that you don't naturally understand it. It's something that's not intuitive. It's legalese. And then people are intimidated by it and they end up paying lawyers. They end up paying funeral directors that they don't have the budget for that are extremely expensive. And it, it's really not legally necessary at all. We've just right. made a system where people don't feel comfortable doing it themselves. Right. Um, plain English documents
0: are are always lauded and always applaud in my books. <laughs> um, Lauren, tell me about your time in the Peace Corps.
1: So I was in Benin, West Africa, and I served as a women's health volunteer. And mainly what I did was help women who wanted birth control obtain IUDs. That was my main thing I did there but while I was there I of course got to observe another culture very different from my own very up close and one of the things that was initially really horrifying was how casual the Viennese people were with death like a child would die and they'd be like oh it's okay you know you'll have another it was it was never as emotionally visible as you might see in the United States Mm. but Because of the way their traditions work, like you have this period of grief where you really go all out. I mean, howling, screaming, drums for days. And then when that period's over, it's over. Like that's when the grief stops. That's something we see throughout, you know, the less developed world. When you look at places like India, they do the same thing. You go to the river, you burn your body, you have this huge emotional release, and then it's over. In America, we never have that emotional release. You know, we always have this stuffy funeral where someone who doesn't really know our loved one talks for a long time and gives this kind of canned ceremony that's not really authentic to who we've lost. We have an embalmed body that maybe even doesn't look like the way we remember that person. And then we've dumped all this money into that. And at no point are we grieving. But in other cultures, especially in Benin, like that grief is first. That's what happens first. And that's something mm. I really admire. And I really admire a culture that takes the opportunity to grieve like that and to say, like, this is going to happen and you're going to have these feelings and you have to let them out and this is how we're going to do it. It seems much more reasonable to me than what we do in America. Agreed. Much more reasonable to
0: be able to have that container for all the release and it be I mean, collective, that, right? I like, God that's also good. a very like, different thing. Mm. Yeah. Acknowledging
1: it, sharing it. Well, and that, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's something I noticed looking through New Zealand articles is New Zealanders seem to be much more supportive of grief. Like when I would watch a funeral in New Zealand, they touch each other. And in America, we don't do that. Like you stand with your arms crossed, you make sad faces at the person. You say, oh, let me know if I can do anything. But in New Zealand, they're constantly touching. If anyone's letting out, you know, a huge release of emotion, Three hands are on their shoulder immediately we don't do that here at all like maybe there's an awkward hug but it was really really beautiful how supportive and physically supportive people were of one another i'm
0: really glad you got that impression um what's what are some of the things that you want to do with the with what that you do do with your services that sort of allow for some of those things that you've observed like let's talk about your offered services Sure. You've
1: got Um, end-of-life planning. Let's start there. Right, right. So I do two levels of of end-of-life planning. Um, One is an advanced care directive, which is basically a really detailed living will. If you have a living will, you probably still need to do an advanced care directive. If you have an advanced care directive, you don't necessarily need the living will. An advanced care directive is going to go through everything through what level of medication you would like to have, um, how much life support you would like to be given, what your family can do. To help you through the dying process. All of those things are dealt with in that type of document. Mm. The second level of that is when I actually collect people's personal information and get them prepared for their family, really, their next of kin to deal with their end of life. So I'll have all their credit card numbers, how the cancellation for each type of account, what that process is, the basic information they need for their eulogy, how they would like their body disposed of, what type of funeral they were wanting, if there was any specific foods, flowers, songs, readings, all those type of things. goes into a massive mm. binder. We throw it on your refrigerator and that's it. <laughs> when the time comes, you go pull it off their face. Um, yeah. From that, yeah. And then, um, so from there, I also offer legacy projects. A legacy project is when you actively take control of how someone is going to remember you. For me, um, one of my little legacy projects is I collect the seeds out of my garden and I give them to all my friends and clients. Um, whenever somebody gets married, I make them a little garden box and they get my seeds. Theoretically, an uh, endless supply of seeds if they heirloom them themselves. Um, but I like the idea of someone looking outside and seeing some seniors and being like, oh, Lauren gave me this. And that's like a mm-hmm. very small example. You know, we've, we've done things where um, I've done a memorial tattoo. I've done uh, a quilt show cookbooks are really popular. You know, it's just whatever you really want to put to the forefront of your loved one's memories of who you are. We figure out what that is and how we're going to produce it. It's one of my favorite things I do.
0: Yeah. That is deeply beautiful to me as an artist as well, because there's just a limitless pantheon of things that you could do to bring in your creative voice. Um, and that's for me a big driver for why my artistry is so important because that is my lasting legacy. That is the mark that stays longer than me.
1: Right, right. And there's an auth- authenticity to it too that it, it's actually you. Like this memory is something you actually produced. That I think is really, oh, really good point. awesome. So from there, I kind of I kind of think of what I do in three sections. The middle section being like active dying. I do comfort therapy and I also do visual services for my comfort therapy. I also got certifications in aromatherapy, sound therapy and meditation. Those were just the things that I kind of felt like gave me the best opportunity to be nurturing towards someone without being physically invasive. When you're dying, you don't necessarily want to be touched a lot. You don't want to be moved a lot. You don't want to have to really contribute much more than what you're already doing. And those were all things that allowed me to care for a person, give attention to a person, and not really invade that bubble for them. And from there, of course, visual service is what people think of when they think of a death doula, I think. You know, they think of us sitting bedside. And it's something we do. It's something that comes up. But it's certainly not the majority of what I do. It's something that only happens occasionally. Mm -hmm. While I was volunteering for hospice, of course, you know, you're in this community of dying people, so there's a lot more death to Mm attend to, but from a client basis, you know, it, it just doesn't really come up very often, but what we do during visual services is we prepare the family for death, what death looks like, what they can expect, the unusual things that might happen that might be a cause for panic, and from there, we make sure that the ambiance is set. I use uh, LED candles so we don't have open flames or on oxygen tanks or anything like that. Oh, good um, point. It, there's just some little things you got to think about, which is what death dealers do. For aromatherapy, I have their loved ones wear it. We wear it. We don't use diffusers or anything. That gives me a little bit of control over how much the smell spreads. We make sure the dying's favorite books are around. We have their music ready. We make sure their pets all come in and visit one more time people are standing around. I might encourage them to lay down with their loved one, touch their loved one, pat on them, prepare for it. Then we wait for the moment of passing and we sit down and have a quiet 15 minutes because once you start making calls, things happen fast. But digital services are definitely uh, really heavy, but also really, really rewarding and really, really beautiful and giving families the opportunity to have that experience outside of a a medical setting and more of a homey, comfortable, light setting. It's really rewarding. And it's something I'm really, really passionate about. Mm. That's,
0: I mean, I love what struck me is when you broke down what what is contained within the term comfort therapy. And that's like all my favorite stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. sound, scent, touch, meditation.
1: Yeah, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, with my meditation certification, what I wanted to be able to do is write customized meditations for people. I wanted them to have mm. their thing, not just like any old thing. And my oh, favorite wow. was a guy who is really into trains and we got to write this really cool train meditation. <laughs> but oh. I love doing that stuff and I love giving people those things that are theirs and just for them and personalized and make things special, you know.
0: And as you said, there are. Are an endless combination of services.
1: Oh, and yeah. And that's our first session. Them. We do all of them. And then we don't do what you don't like anymore.
0: <laughs> right. And so you've done some some really good, awesome, juicy work to create these additional certifications that allow you to be able to um, bring these services to the forefront.
1: Right, right. I mean, death doulas have an endless combination of services that they offer. We don't all offer the same thing. For me, I really wanted to be able to see a family from planning all the way through burial. That was something it was really important for me to do as an individual. That's not something all death duels do. It, in fact, it's a little bit uncommon. But it was important for oh, me to say, like, once you come to me, we're going to be together through this whole process if you want to. Mm. So you've made some lasting connections then. Well, you know, it's something I've, I've kind of started realizing that I, for some people, am associated with the death of their loved one. And my job is to make that as easy as I can. And then I take that and I go away. And we don't we don't see each other because I am associated with that death for them. And it's not out of like meanness or anything, but it's something that I. it was a fairly recent realization <laughs> for me that there are moments that, you know, people don't necessarily want to see me. But some people do. And, you know, we lean into whatever the client is comfortable with. Mm. The client is always the guide. I love that. Yeah. But, yeah, for other services, um, you know, something that's really unique that I do that is, you know, additional to my death doula work is I'm a home funeral guide. And um, when we talk about home funerals, people always act like it's this, like, ancient thing that's happened millions of years ago. But my great-grandfather was home funeral on his dining room table. You don't even have to go back 60 years to see where people, especially in places like Kentucky, where we have a lot of rural areas, are still doing home funeraling. For those who don't know, a home funeral is where, when your loved one passes at home, their body is tended by their family. So we wash the body, take care of any leakage, any smells, any bacterial possibilities, get them shrouded, lay them out if we'd like, in general, for 24 hours, if you're only keeping a body for a day, it's fairly stable. Most places advise anything over three days is a little iffy. The third day is really where a body starts to behave like a body. But when you're going to keep a body longer than a day, we just ice it down. Thanks to COVID, there's all sorts of alternative ways to keep a body cool now, which you know, is a morbid silver lining, but it's a thing that happened. Um mm. Yeah, very obvious. It's a dark hole. We don't need to go down there right now. That allows for a family really to be with the body of their loved one, really have that moment to release the grief, process the death, give their loved one this last, final, grand gesture. And then here, if your family wants to drive you to the point of disposition, that's legal. You just have to get a provisional death certificate to do it. So that, Mm -hmm. you know, a family really can, from start to finish, funeral their loved one. Yeah. So embalming seems to
0: be what most people assume when you even use the word funeral, like embalming is almost like coupled with it. But Mm -hmm. there are so many other forms of from the home funeral all the way to um, disposition, which is an interesting word I haven't heard before you. What are some of the other ways outside of embalming?
1: So, Or what's your opinion on
0: embalming in general?
1: Embalming absolutely has, Elaine. There are times when a body... Does need to be embalmed. If you're going to be laid out for a very long time and there's no way to keep that body cool, you need to be embalmed. If a body is being shipped, it needs to be embalmed. But really, that's it. Americans are really kind of unique globally in that we embalm almost everybody. It's not necessary. You know, even the idea of it, almost all of our death traditions come from wartime <laughs> residuals. So this idea that you have to be embalmed comes from the Civil War. And what happened is, you know, our train system was rising right at the same time that the Civil War was occurring. And Mm -hmm. people were, of course, loading bodies into the train to be shipped home. And I've read these encounters where like initially you would smell the train when it pulled up and then you would be able to smell the train as it was coming in. And then it was just the smell of death all the time. And the train system was really trying to develop to be this really like, elegant travel system they weren't trying to transport bodies so that's really the first people to say like we're not transporting these bodies unless you've embalmed them and at that point Mm -hmm. like there's not even funeral directors it's just these strange people in tents who literally follow battles and you know have their own embalming concoctions to embalm bodies with but that's really where that idea comes from is like this idea that you have to be embalmed isn't legally true but it's born from this wartime practice that our train system didn't want to stink. So. Okay. <laughs> Little but yeah, fact, I mean, Embalming I is unnecessary. It's violating. It's a really kind of a gory process. I know embalmers who will embalm anybody but their mother. I've heard people say that multiple times. And that's always something I kind of take to heart, too. Like, it's not a gentle process. If you don't need it, I wouldn't do it. And then
0: what about the, so is disposition just for the um, state of of placing the body in its final resting place?
1: Right. Disposition is what you're going to do with the body. So I I really like to talk about disposition in order of cost because it magically lines up with what is actually the most ecologically friendly. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. So your most ecologically friendly, nicest option, if you are into it is to donate your body. Mostly universities will take your body. It's, and it's not just medical departments. Anthropology departments use them as well. Outside of universities, there are large corporations who will take your body. Most of those do go into medical work or testing, but it's an opportunity to give back to humans <laughs> as your mm-hmm. last gesture on this earth. And I think that's really cool. Right now I'm signed up to donate my body to the University of Knoxville. You know, it's something you can be proactive about, but it's also something that you can be rejected for. They don't have to take your body, so you have to have a backup plan if that's going to be your option. From there, we can go to water cremation. I didn't have time to look up if it's legal in New Zealand yet. I would think it is, if it's starting to be legal here. But what I think is really cool about aquamation is that, you know, you're essentially dissolving a body in a Very similar way that that body would decompose. Mm -hmm. Once the process is complete, your muscles and tissues are water and what is left is bone. The cremains are bright white. It's not a new technology. It's The original patent is like 1891. Yeah, it it came back into fashion here with mad cow disease. That's how we were getting rid of cows that had the disease. And that's sort of what led into going into the human world. It's had a big boost here since Desmond Tutu also chose aquamation. But what is really cool about aquamation is you're disposing of a body and using basically no energy. So you're getting rid of the flesh. You're getting a, rid of the problematic parts using a combination of lye, water, and agitation. So that's pretty that's awesome. It. That's it. And you get these really pretty white cremains. People put them in hourglasses and things. It's It's a cool... It's a cool process, and I'm really hoping we see more of it here. In terms of legalization, it's going state by state right now. The closest to me is South Carolina, but I hope we have, have it here soon. The mm. kerfuffle, I hear, is what to do with the water afterwards. Even though you're chemically water, there is some hesitation as to whether you can just dump that back into the water supply or if that needs to be contained somehow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So then, of course, and that's, we have traditional. Go ahead. Oh yeah, no,
0: go ahead. No, yeah, you're oh. you're gonna get into it.
1: <laughs> so then we have traditional cremation, which is of course fire. It's roughly the same emissions as a 500 mile car drive. Cremains themselves are acidic. You know, there, there's this idea that like I'm gonna take my cremains and I'm gonna put them in a pod and be a tree. That's not real. Uh, your cremains have no nutritional value. And really, what I see happen a lot, and really some of my first cases were people who had this backlog of cremains and they didn't know what to do with them so if you do choose cremation I really really encourage everyone to choose what's going to be done with those cremains as well like don't don't just get cremated and leave it to your family have a point of disposition as well gotcha from there we have natural burial and natural burial is actually way more green than cremation I did those out of order But natural burial is something I'm really passionate about. It's something I hope to bring to Kentucky really soon. What happens in natural burial is, of course, we don't embalm the body. The body is contained in a biodegradable container. So you can be in a natural fiber shroud. You might be in a cardboard coffin. You might be in a wood coffin. It just needs to be biodegradable. Mm -hmm. The body itself goes in at three and a half feet instead of the conventional six feet. And what that does is allow for oxygen exchange. And that oxygen exchange is what allows your body to decompose. As you decompose naturally, the thing that the soil really benefits from is your gut biome. It's all our weird, creepy crawlies. It's not so much that we're so nutrient, it's that we have really good microbiomes. But that does replenish the soil around us. And it is something that I think is really cool that, you know, your last gesture can be one of replenishment of the earth. And I think that's really beautiful. It's also it is. something that when you see a natural burial mound, it's an entirely different feel. Like it's like the earth has been pulled up and tucked your loved one in and not so much like a deep, dark grave that's been dug to inter your loved one. Yeah. So it's also something that, you know, we did for hundreds of thousands of years. Well, OK, more like 80,000 years. But <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that when you see it and when you participate, in, you're like, oh, this calls to the ancient part of myself. Like this is hearkening to my spirit. I understand. This makes sense. And that's something that, you know, it's not a feeling you get to have too often. So when you see it, it's it's really awe-taking.
0: Really, really and awesome. what do you mean by you want to bring it to Kentucky? Is there just no green burial? No, options? we don't
1: have any public green burial spaces here. Wow, that's you can be buried on private property in some counties. It's something that varies by county, but for the most part, we don't have a public green cemetery here. Okay, yeah, you got to go to Ohio or Tennessee.
0: I cannot wait to see what you do with this one,
1: (laughs) but yeah, so from there, of course, we have a traditional burial. And I, well, I feel like traditional is the wrong word, it's more conventional burial. Uh, And that's where we're going to embalm our body. We're using a steel casket. We're going in at six feet. We're going in a grave liner and a vault around the casket. And then we're going to dump six feet of dirt on top of it, which is roughly 8,000 pounds of dirt. That vault, all it's going to do is make landscaping easier over your grave. So it just holds the dirt in place and keeps it from collapsing down over time. Entirely unnecessary. It's a ton of steel and concrete we're putting back into the earth that we really don't need. In the United States, this was another difference I noticed in New Zealand. Most of the coffins in New Zealand were natural wood. Here, they're almost exclusively steel. Uh, It's easier to produce. It's more inexpensive. Not to say that coffins here are by any means inexpensive. You can spend ungodly amounts on burial vessels. You know, so we have all these layers of things and chemicals that are never going to biodegrade. So in contrast to natural burial, where our last gesture is going to be replenishing the earth, with conventional burial, we're going to put a bunch of concrete and steel and toxic chemicals in the earth and then leave it. And it doesn't decompose and it enters the water table and your body is held in this really odd state, or at least that's how I feel about it. Like you're not allowed to decompose. You're just this weird, waxy corpse instead. And I I don't... I don't like thinking about it, at least. Maybe other people mm. are more comfortable with it. No. I don't, it's probably I a Christian thing. I've go. never figured it out. Oh, maybe. Like an incorruptible court type, you know. Right. I keep thinking I'll bump into that writing, but I haven't yet. Okay.
0: Uh, I might have you back and figure out some, some of the mysteries that are still out there for you. <laughs> You've talked about creating with this green cemetery a place of returning that's not just for the dead but for the living where people could have foraging dinners, Dia de los muertos, you know gardens, a yeah. you know opportunity for more adornment to be sort of front and center. Can you paint a picture of what you've got in your head?
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, when I first started, I really wanted to steer away from the term alternative. I, I didn't think it was really particularly inclusive. But the truth of the matter is what I want to create is an alternative to our modern death our industry. You know, I want to offer natural burial. I want to have an open air pyre. If you want to be a tree or a Viking, you come see me. I'll take care of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I also want it to be a place where people are constantly interacting and not in a traditionally reverent way. You know, I, I don't want a sad family to come out on your death anniversary each year and that's the only time anyone comes to visit you. I want this to be a property that is active where people are coming to be part of nature in both a physical death way and a mental living way. I want there to be that connection that like nature is beautiful and wonderful and awe-inspiring and we are part of it and we are part of a cycle and that property... I want to be a place where people have that feeling, you know, like it's all happening around you. And part of that is celebrating the property. I'm really into mushrooms. Foraging dinners sound awesome. I really want to have festivals. I want to do solstice festivals. I want to do Dia de los Muertos. I want to do all those things. I want to give families those opportunities to be with their loved ones, be in their grief, visit their loved ones, talk about them do something outside of what we're doing.
0: Mm. Because what
1: we're doing is really ignoring death. And it's, it's just not working out. You know? <laughs> I can do so much better. So let's do it. Mm. Yes. What do you mean
0: you're really into mushrooms?
1: <laughs> so initially, my little pandemic activity was that I started growing mushrooms in my side yard. And
0: Beautiful.
1: to start, it was just some oysters, you know, your garden I variety. I love oysters. Mm-hmm. I have oyster mushrooms. And Then we went to red wine cap, and I've just been throwing those around my garden for years now. So they're everywhere. Added lion's mane, chicken of the woods, just a few other things. And then, of course, that eventually turned in to me ex- kind of learning more about death care and its relationship with mushrooms. And yeah. mushrooms throughout death, you know, they're, they're reoccurring. Like when we do a natural burial and we put a body in at three and a half feet, that's also the same depth that the mother mycm layer is. Mm-hmm. And what mycm and mushrooms do is they take dead and decaying materials and make them accessible to living things. So they're yes. not so much like the symbol of death. They're the bridge between life and death. And in that same spirit, When we're looking at psilocybin or or magic mushrooms, when we're looking at how those chemicals affect our brain, it's really to create that same bridge. What happens a lot with a terminal diagnosis is that people freeze and they don't know how to continue living. And what psilocybin really does is allow for that separation of ego so that people can process their diagnosis and their life and kind of get unstuck and continue to live. You know, it's something that Johns Hopkins has been doing for years. It's something that's really, really developed. It's something that I'm starting to see uh, pharmaceutical companies try and create. Like I saw an Instagram ad for Sybin, which is, (laughs) I assume, the pharmaceutical version of psilocybin. But at the same time, you know, there's this opportunity to give people at their end of life some peace through something that's naturally occurring that is consistently tied through our existence not just as living beings, but as human beings. You know, there's a lot of evidence that psilocybin factors greatly into how we develop, how we develop speech, how we see things. We are tied to that chemical throughout history. So I think it's really, really awesome that, you know, the more we look at this, the more we're seeing people can have this freedom from that anxiety, from something as gentle as a chemical-like, psilocybin that is naturally occurring in our environment
0: beautiful I was just kind of having a realization as you were talking about it and the concept you were saying what is this thing about American culture that needs uh, us to be wrapped up in steel sanitized and suspended in this sort of toxic way and I was thinking about the my initial reaction to foraging mushrooms over someone's grave, like there was an ick factor there. And then I explored the ick factor being that removal that you were just talking about. Like it only, it's just a vicious cycle that feeds into itself. If you're as far removed from the death process as we, as we, you know, culturally are. Right. I mean, everything
1: is kind of gross. (laughs) Well, and I think, find that to be very true. Everything is kind of gross. And I think, (laughs) all just maybe internalize that everyone is gross <laughs> we could maybe get somewhere but you know those mushrooms even if they're not born above a grave they're part of something else just like everything around us mm-hmm. is part of something else so mm-hmm. what is it to you is actually or can be rebranded in a really beautiful you know i am you and you are me and we've all been the same and we're all the same chemicals and atoms that have ever existed we're all together and we'll never be different like cosmic soup (laughs) yes
0: um mushrooms absolutely change our worldview every single day that I think about a mushroom my entire worldview changes just ever so slightly they're pretty cool
1: they're the og internet I mean
0: (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> Accurate, And I love that you called it the mother mycel- mycelium layer. Mm-hmm. I just recently read Finding the Mother Tree. So that has deep resonance for me, the term mother.
1: Yeah. Well, it's something that's global, which I think is, you know, it's just one of those fun little, maybe the universe isn't as much chaos as you think it is. It's always three and a half feet. That's where she sits.
0: Mm got a little bit of time for me to kind of ask about the differences that you were spotting in yep. um, Aotearoa and Australasia in general versus America. I mean, you were talking about um, when we were discussing this recording uh, opportunity that a lot of your training, was it com- coming out of Australia?
1: The the manuals? So or my celebrancy training, which I'm a celebrant, which is a non-denominational reverend, basically. So if you don't prescribe to a particular church, I will take care of your eulogy. (laughs) That's really what that means. But the textbook for that program was out of Australia. And one of the things I found really interesting is while a lot of Australian death culture mimics the United States death culture, it's not born from war industry and literally everything in the United States comes from war industry. That's where all of our innovations in death, all of the ideas about funerals, those type of things, it all comes from wartime practices. So to see a society where things have developed similarly, but outside of that is is interesting, especially as an American, because everything we do it seems so war-laden that it's interesting to see that it can happen without it. Mm-hmm. In terms of New Zealand, there's this great... I, I, When you asked me to do this, I had completely forgotten about this series called Casketeers on Netflix, which I like devoured when I first found it. But it's about a New Zealand funeral home. And, you know, I kind of went back through it just to kind of see what I was thinking. And just some big things I noticed in general. New Zealand, of course, we've already talked about natural coffins. We've talked about New Zealanders being like physically affectionate towards one another in grief, which is something that is like the most un-American thing in the world. Something else I noticed is the family was encouraged to dress the body. Here, that would never happen. It would never, ever, ever happen. Most funeral directors here have a fear of being sued if their loved one or if the loved one they present is too dead looking. Like it's a fear they constantly have. So even if you're doing like a last view before cremation, they're still doing all the facial tricks. Like your eyelids are glued shut. Your mouth is sewed shut. They're doing all those things because they're really worried about a lawsuit, which is another just like so American on the nose kind of thing. Other things I noticed that I never really figured out why are, and it might've just been in the series, but often the tombstones would be on rocks, like through the cemeteries, instead of being directly on the lawn, is that something you've noticed? No, being a explain thing, what you or? mean. So, in a lot of the cemeteries they so- showed in the show, the monuments in the cemetery wouldn't be directly on the soil. They would create like a slab of concrete and that's where the monuments would... Right. So that was one of my questions. If that was like an ongoing thing, is that something that's in all New Zealand cemeteries? Yes, everyone that I've been to. Yeah. I was just wondering why. <laughs> why? A lot of yes. rain maybe? I don't know.
0: Uh, yep. Yeah, there's so, I mean, definitely we have a very soggy, watery earth here. So for sure, that could,
1: well could be a part of it. Yet. But that was one Especially. of my observations. Another one was that funeral homes seem to work really, really well with home services. Here, you have to ask around to find a funeral director who is willing to transport a body to a personal home. But in New Zealand, that seemed pretty everyday, no big deal, which I thought was very cool. Um, I was surprised that embalming was still so prevalent, but that's just sort of how we handle things now. Mostly through Europe, they're converting over to refrigeration, which is just as effective in most cases, but hasn't made it to us yet. Okay,
0: we have got to stop embalming, unless you are wanting that, like transporting right. the body across the ocean or. You know, a 8, 12, 16 day visual. Right, right. We we don't need it outside of that. Okay. I will assist in popularizing <laughs> that concept. Thank you. Thank you. I will Thank do you. my part. <laughs>
1: <sighs> well, and you're Jewish, so you don't do it anyway. <laughs> I, <don't know.
0: laughs> I haven't figured out what I'm going to do yet, but let me tell you there's a part of me that wanted to open this chapter for my own personal benefit so I hope that someone else listening also has like a moment of okay there's a lot of options out there
1: yeah and I'll say too like most of my clients are people our age whose parents aren't entering end of life but that's looming and really, what people want is to have that conversation with their parents, and they want me there to soften the blow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's one of my main purposes. That's one of the main things I do. I have a really cool board game we play called the Death Deck. But I'll also say that what? Yeah, it's it's really fun. We'll play sometime. <laughs> <But> <laughs> what I'll also say is that you know while these conversations are really heavy and really awkward to start, people are always. Tremendously relieved when it's over. Like people, you can see the weight come off of them. Like these are conversations that are necessary. These are conversations that even if we don't know it, we're thinking about, and they're important to have. It reminds me a lot of being a sex educator. Like it at that time, you say a lot of things like it's okay, everybody does it. And I find myself saying like really similar things when I'm facilitating <laughs> those conversations. <laughs> so yeah there's some ick there's some shame but it's okay we're all gonna die it's not a big deal let's just prepare a little bit for it for everybody's well-being did
0: you have a uh do you have a recollection of the moment you realized you were gonna die the moment I realized
1: I was gonna die yeah do you do you have a memory Uh, of that no not really like I mean, I've definitely had moments where I thought I was going to die, but I'm not sure right. what the first one is. No, that's a very different situation. Usually, but yeah, um, I think uh, we've all kissed death a few times by the time we are under 30s or 40s. <laughs> you felt mortality living. a couple times.
0: Yeah. No, I just have a, and you'll, I, I, you'll get a kick out of this because I was in front of the Lansdowne Public Library. Yeah. And I, my parents went into the library to drop off a book. Uh, No, Tate's Creek. Nope, Lansdowne. And I was in the car by myself, and I have no idea what happened. But all of a sudden, the realization flashed over me that I was going to die. And it wasn't um, what you had with your, you know, if I leave my parents, they could die. It was the other, like, I'm going to die. And I, like, my parents came back to the car. must have been four or five. Oh, so you were teeny. My parents came back to a bawling Bruno <laughs> in the car. And they were like,
1: what happened? <laughs> I was like, I've got to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've had that in my house lately, too. Uh, our cat passed away. I have a three-year-old. So explaining death to a person who doesn't necessarily understand object permanence, can be really intense, <laughs> you know what we ended up doing is blowing up balloons because that was a good way for me to be like, once it pops, it's over. That's how we got through it. But oh, beautiful. Um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting time. It's an interesting thing to watch a little person process for sure. Yeah, we buried a hedgehog
0: um, that had wandered into our garden and I am um, was like, When's it gonna come back out? I'm like, nope. <laughs> well <laughs> and Never. then he was like A immediately hedgehog. like do we get another hedgehog is this what life is now hedgehogs come here to die is that gonna happen <laughs> like where's the next hedgehog coming from
1: i mean maybe but
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think he was into that like oh yeah we yeah. take care of hedgehogs before they die mm. okay That's,
1: yeah hedgehog death doula. i like it <laughs> i it love it
0: yes okay <laughs> Oh, Lauren, I just have benefited so greatly from this conversation. Oh, good. And I feel like I've been rambling
1: like a crazy person.
0: (laughs) Not necessarily a bad thing in my books. (laughs) 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 No, we prepared. We organized this. This was good. Yeah, we tried. tried. Uh, Can I ask you some questions that I ask my guests? Absolutely. (laughs) Given the option to fly to the other solar systems and explore extraterrestrial existence or the gift of flight here on Earth, which would you choose?
1: I'm going to fly on Earth. You know, I I still think there's a whole lot here we have yet to discover. <laughs> and nice. death is certainly in that category. You know, there's so many <laughs> unexplained things that happen around death that... Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you what you think happens. I don't know, but something happens. It is not uncommon for people to have visions of loved ones that have passed on. Children tend to only have visions of their pets because those are the only beings they know that have passed. Reaching is very common. Talking. And when I say visions, I don't mean like a visual apprehension or anything. I mean like, like they are interacting in a very real way in the same way you and I are interacting. And it's something I've witnessed. It's something you know that goes into hospice pamphlets because it's so common at the actual point of death people are often smiling or let out like a happy sigh it's usually not a heavy sigh and people who have after death experiences you know they they tend to be of the positive variety it's it's never anything super scary or dark it's always pretty light so what i think happens is that maybe we don't understand it just yet and in general Maybe we need to be okay with saying like, well, we don't know. And, you know, someone smarter and more capable than me will discover it someday. And then we will. But there's something there for sure. Mm. I love it. How about you? What do you think happens? I
0: don't know because I'm one of those people that really enjoy multiple scenarios and multiple possibilities and know one way. So I kind of like the idea of um, a choose your own adventure solution where like, all of these things could be happening like, yeah, mm-hmm. past lives are totally possible, um, which means that some form of shared cognizance continues to get passed on. But also I'm totally cool with just like some kind of black hole uh, nothingness. Uh, all of those things Either are way. super cool with me.
1: Right not? Like, you know, like I worked at the Kentucky Theater for a long time and my favorite thing to do was close the movie doors right before a show started, and that's very much what being a death doula feels like. It's like closing Ooh. the door on our current adventure and sending people on another one. Oh, that is golden! <laughs> wow, But true. It's that same like that same feeling.
0: Shit, <laughs> I didn't know it was possible to fall more in love with you. <laughs> Damn, girl. That was amazing. Is there a word in another language that has like a deep, deep meaning for you? Um, my mom um, told me about a magazine article from Discovery that she read that learning another language makes you a better person. Hmm. So I kind of wondered what other language outside of English feels like if there's like a word or a phrase.
1: You know, I originally wanted to call my business Obel. And an obol is a Greek coin that you give to Charon to cross the river Styx. And right. I didn't because I thought it was too obscure and no one would pick it up. Mm-hmm. But that, that concept, this idea of the obol is something that's really stuck with me. It's something I think about. It's something I sort of visualize myself as the obol taker to ensure Absolutely. your safe passage. So, yeah, ancient languages right now are really appealing to me. But, you know, I'm also in this phase where, like, I'm really interested in ritualizing things. I'm really interested in giving people opportunities to further explore their experiences. And that's right along that path, you know.
0: Yes, it is. Everything is an opportunity for ritual. God, thank you so much, Lauren. As we approach the end of this episode, I just... It would be, I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to just voice gratitude. In this moment, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to destigmatize, to explore the taboo, to release some of that avoidant tension. You've given me a great gift um, in this conversation. (laughs) Uh, And I'm grateful that we have this incredible, beautiful blue green earth that we do need to protect. We do need to think about how our end of life choices affect this beautiful planet and the flora and fauna that truly are the equilibrium. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm, I'm grateful for the guides and the ancestors that dwell within our bones and the veil that overlaps and whispers in our ears and provides the inspiration for you and for me. And I'm so grateful for the people in my life, this network of support and unconditional love and thank you, Lauren, for giving me your time and exploring oh, your passions. Absolutely. I'm
1: happy to be here.
0: Mm. Uh, I just love hearing about what inspires you and getting under the hood of why you chose this path. I just, you've just nailed it. You, I'm just so That's happy good. for you. <laughs> happy to share it. More and death thanks-
1: workers, everybody be one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> gotten me thinking about it now (laughs) (laughs) thanks to bjorn for the post-production packaging up of this delicious experience and thank you to you dear listener for joining us on this Uh, if you have more questions for lauren whether it is the kind of questions or process to ask if you don't live near her, but even just, just a chat. I'm sure she'd be open to that and I'll drop in her website and contact details.
1: Yeah. Holler uh, anytime.
0: I guide. Yeah. Check out the show notes. I feel like I'm going to put in some really juicy opportunities for y'all in there. So um, until next time, I hope you all have enjoyed. Thank you so much, Lauren. I hope you had a good time. I did. It was lovely to see you. Talk to you. Whew. Whew. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kakitia uh Yakoto. See you again in another week in another episode of the Rudo Love podcast.